0: Okay, hey, assalamualaikum alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody to an amazing Saturday session, the last session of Ramadan, sadly. Um, it's incredible, I can't believe we're already at the end, almost to Aid. I was just thinking about the gifts that we got here during the month of Ramadan, alhamdulillah. We finished Surah Al-Nisa, we finished Surah Al-Mujaddala. Tonight, inshallah, um, we'll finish uh, Surah Munafikun. Um, we launched The Prophet's Pulpit and Osuli Press. I hope you guys have all had a chance to get your copy. If not, please do. Amazing Eid presents. Um, I designed a t-shirt. The intellectual revolution has begun. So if anyone wants one, email me. They're about 25 bucks. We'll send them to you um, at cost. Um, so I, you know, I'm just, alhamdulillah, so, so grateful um and yeah and so i'm making other cool merch too so i'll let you know as soon as we get more um but anyway alhamdulillah so much to be grateful for um i took a lot of time last time so i'm gonna be really short today i just wanted to share um some really beautiful messages that i got um you know like um alhamdulillah i feel like i am getting more and more messages as people find asuli um and like what really strikes me is um actually let me tell this story i this week i I went to the doctor with mido and it was really nice muslim doctor here in columbus um we knew a lot of common people we had talked about different things he was not you know before aware of a so anyway we're talking about different things and i was excited to see him again because i wanted to bring him a copy of the prophet's pulpit and so i handed it to him and he was very happy very grateful but he was like oh you know nice okay a collection of of khutbas, and he you know wasn't like exactly overwhelmed he didn't really know very much about what we do here but um he was like yeah you know I like listening to Omar Suleiman on my way um during Ramadan and listen to what he does and so it kind of struck me um like oh okay well if someone is happy with listening to khutbas from Omar Suleiman um and, you know, gets a book of chutbas, it's like, eh, you know, not that exciting a gift. So I thought, hmm, I, and I tried to say, well, you know, I think what we do here is a little bit different, it's a little bit more advanced, but, you know, I couldn't say very much, and I didn't want to really, like, um, be annoying about it. So then, but it kind of, like, bothered me, and it kind of stuck with me, and I'm like, okay, you know, what do I say to someone who is perfectly happy with Omar Suleiman khutbas? because I know what we do here is very different. You know, I've talked about, um, you know Yakin Institute and their approach and and how I really believe like what we offer here is something like uh, you know much more than just um, nice platitudes. But anyway, I thought okay, well you know what I should do a little bit of my own research. And so I decided to look up on YouTube and see what Omar saliman is talking about. And I watched a video where he was advising people about the five most important things that you should do during um, during the month um, during Laylat Le- Le- al-Qadr. Actual- I left my phone over there. So um, from memory, they were something like, you know, remember that the night begins with Maghrib and be careful what you say, because if you say something wrong, you could lose that night with, you know, before, right after dinner, you could be having a conversation and you could like make a bad joke or you could say something that's really wrong and you would lose the evening. So remember, the night begins after Maghrib. And then the second was to make sure you pray, um, you know, in jama'ah both, um, you know, your night prayers and also Fajr and then you know several other things and they were all like very ritualistic and by the end it was like the theme was not take the time you know it took off was not about you know isolating to connect with god but it was just to isolate and prevent yourself from sinning so you would lose the night and i felt like you know um so much of what we talk about here is developing your relationship with god and you know the point of like you know whether it's isolation or prayer or all of that is not to avoid sin so you ruin the evening but so you actually develop your relationship with god and so i felt like it was such a different message and it was striking to me because i hadn't really listened to very much of omar Suleiman. i mean he's obviously a very nice man and you know very well intentioned everything so i don't mean this to say that there's anything you know bad about him but it's like a very different approach than what we do here and like i you know was mentioning to someone um you know like I feel like what we give people is, you know, not just a whole comprehensive view, but also tools. So like, if you think about even the incredible khutbah that Sheikh gave, gave yesterday, um, it's called, you know, is your dignity founded in God, or is it founded in your ego? And it's important because it's not just about, you know, a message, but it's also like tools, you know? So these are like, Sheikh was talking about, you know, ways for us to even self-evaluate and check ourselves. Do you feel this way? Is your reaction this? If someone tries to correct you or tell you something, what is your reaction? Um, you know, these are like indicators for us that are extremely powerful, you know, so that we can reflect and we have the tools in the empowerment to make a change ourselves. Um, you know, and so when we talk about even the way we approach like the surahs, you know, and we learn that, for example, you know, surah nisa is where God is giving us a moral lesson, but then also the tools and you know an example of how to apply them it's like when that expression, you know, if you if you give someone a fish, you feed them for a day, but if you teach them how to fish, you give them something for a lifetime. And I feel like that's the difference between what we do here and, you know, sort of like this idea of just avoid sin, don't ruin your night, you know, do um, something very ritualistic and very like step-by-step step, as opposed to here's a way to live your life, here's a way to check yourself, here's a way, here are the tools so that you can be an elevated ethical person. And I think that that's really beautiful and it's also really reflected in a lot of the messages that we've been getting. So the two messages that I want to share that were really special um, among so many, and again, thank you to people who write and share with me. Um, as I've said so many times before, we really have no idea how people are receiving this unless we hear from people and um, people have been writing and, and please forgive me for not responding very quickly because I'm just trying to catch up. But inshallah, I will get back to everyone. Um, so um, these are a couple of messages I got their permission to share. Um, salaam, Grace. Um, in this email, I want to send the Asuli Institute my gratitude and appreciation for all that you do. I became familiar with Dr. Abul, Abul and the Institute recently, and I feel relief that I am able to learn the true Islam. I feel that I can finally incorporate a sense of spirituality and connection with Allah in my healing journey. I live in Canada. I was, however, born and raised in a refugee camp in Iraq after my parents fled Iran during the Iran-Iraq War in 1979. I came as a government-sponsored refugee at the age of 14. My family has endured many hardships, having lived in refugee camps for 22 years. My father and other family members were also shot and injured in 2007 by U.S. soldiers in Kirkuk, Iraq, two days before my brother's wedding At one point in my life, I viewed Ayan Hershey Ali as a role model after reading her books because she shared some real stories of abuse which I could relate to. While growing up in the camp, I remember imams screaming during Friday sermons, telling the men, Shame on you if you let your wives go to school, and so on. Thus, I grew up associating this type of rhetoric with Islam. Alhamdulillah, at some point I was able to distinguish Islam from the abuse of women I have seen in my life and many other issues facing the Muslim community. There is so much suffering in certain parts of the Muslim world due to war, poverty, exploitation, etc. And yet our imams and educators focus much of their time on ritual. Dr. Abu Fadl is the first scholar that I have heard talk about issues of injustice facing Muslims in his sermons. He reminds us that Allah sees the injustice we face. Um, uh, thank you so much. I just wanted to say how grateful I am to be part of the Suli Institute community and I hope to meet you in person one day, inshallah. May Allah bless you for all your efforts. Um, again, just you know, like the focus on ritual just doesn't help and alhamdulillah when we get messages like this. Um, this second message is um, also to me just um, encapsulates really the purpose of, of what we do here and, and I hope you see what I mean. I salam grace, inshallah, I hope these last days of Ramadan are blessed, full of God's mercy and forgiveness for you, Sheikh, and your whole team. And may God allow us all to experience many more Ramadans. First of all, the Prophet's pulpit is incredible. I'm finding it hard to put down and focus on work. My husband ordered a copy to share with our local library, and I plan to buy more copies to give to friends. I wish every Muslim in the world would not only read it, but really internalize its profound messages. But that's not why I'm reaching out. I wanted to share with you the feeling of empowerment I feel right now thanks to the Sheikh's work. I think for the first time ever, I truly feel confident that Islam is a beautiful moral faith and I do not feel apologetic whatsoever. I wanted to share how I came to this realization. Today I saw a comment on Facebook under a post bashing religion in in general. The comment essentially said, yeah, Muslim beliefs are so degrading to women and gay people to the extreme. Usually, I read something like that, roll my eyes and move on. But for some reason, I felt like, no, I need to stand up for Islam. That is wrong. The narrative is wrong. If I won't say something, who will? So I responded with this message. That is not what Islam teaches at all. Any individual who has these beliefs completely misunderstands the moral message of Islam, which stands for equality, justice, and empowerment of the disempowered. The problem is not with the religion. It is with the human interpretive agent who views the religion through their own hateful, bigoted, and misogynistic lens. They predictably replied that some Muslims force women to wear the veil, ban women from voting, blah, blah, blah. So I replied, sadly, that is true, but again, that is not a reflection of the true teachings of the religion, but of the individuals corrupting the religion for their egoistic purposes. But yes, out of almost two billion Muslims, some are ignorant, just as is the case in all faiths. After I had this exchange, I sat with myself and it dawned on me that I have complete confidence in what I said and complete confidence that what he said is dead wrong. That confidence, that certitude, that has come from listening to hours upon hours of the Sheikh's halakhas and sermons that have brought the Quran to life for me, has allowed me to not only love my faith more deeply, but to feel empowered to defend it unapologetically. There aren't words to thank you and the Sheikh for that gift, but inshallah, I will show my gratitude by persevering on this path of certitude and empowerment and never again feel even a seed of doubt about what Islam stands for. Anyway, I got a kick out of that reflection and thought you might too. Oh my God, I was in tears reading that and alhamdulillah that like, what is a better gift? What is the whole point of what we're doing? And then to help even one person find certitude and beauty and confidence in their faith, empowerment in their faith. And so, I mean, that just encapsulates it all. And I hope, inshallah, if you're just starting with us on this journey, or if you've been with us for a while, that inshallah, you will also reach that because what more what more could you ask for? And to receive a gift like that during Ramadan was truly another Ramadan gift. So anyway, may all of you, inshallah, um, find your, your faith and beauty and confidence and certitude in, in what we're doing here, inshallah, if you don't already have it. And, um, you know, inshallah, you know, I just wanted to wish everyone a beautiful Aeid and Ramadan, and I'm so excited for another session. Um, thank you for joining us.
1: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Rabbil Alameen. salatu ala Muhammad. النبي الأمين الموسى رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن تبعوا بإحسانه إلى يوم الدين الله مشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلو العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين إن شاء الله سوره المنافقون Um, okay, before we, we jump into surah, let's again, as usual, um, just situate the surah first a, a little bit. We uh, There are reports that um, Tell us that Surat Al-Munafiqun, according to these reports, were revealed after Surat Al-Hajj, which is quite implausible because Surat Al-Hajj was quite late in the Medina period. Um Surah Al Hajj um it's not very likely that Surat al Hajj was revealed before at least at least the sixth uh year of Hijrah. Um while Al Munafiqun. um some reports say that it was revealed in shortly after Ohud if so then it would be the third year of Hijrah maybe the fourth, early fourth year of Hijrah Um, while other reports say that it was revealed around the time of Ghazwat Banu Mustalaq, which we'll talk a little bit a little bit about. And if this is the case, then either Ghazwat Banu Mustalaq took place earlier than what most think. So either this Ghazwa took place around the fourth year of the Hijra, or Ghazwa took place in in the sixth year of Hijrah and Surat al-Munafiqun was re- revealed around the sixth year of Hijra. In all cases, I think it is fairly unlikely that Al-Munafiqun was revealed after Surat al-Hajj. I think that it was probably revealed before Surat al-Hajj. As we will see in, in the course of our discussion, um, is it Was it revealed shortly after the Battle of Uhud? Um, I don't think so, for a variety of reasons. I think that the likelihood is, in fact, that Surah al Munafiqoon was revealed around Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalik, around that time, or even perhaps during that time. Um, but I do believe that Ghazwat Banul al is not as late as many sources claim it was. That Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalaq did not take place in the six uh, year hij- of Hijra, but it is likely that Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalaq took place in the fourth year or the fifth year of Hijrah, either late fourth or early fifth year of Hijrah. Um, We even have uh, an interesting report. I don't remember who was it that uh, narrated it, that um, Surah Al was revealed around the time of Ghazwa Tabuk, which is very unlikely because Ghazwa Tabuk is too late uh, for Surah Al Now, it's interesting because the message, although This is an an example of a surah, fairly short, obviously, but it's an example of a surah that that refers to historical events in the very text of the surah. So the surah itself is referring to uh, historical events. So by doing so, the surah itself situates itself historically. But at the same time that it does that, the message of the surah is transcendental. It transcends historical circumstance. It transcends historical events. Um, It is indeed, as we will see, inshallah, so transcendental that I think that this is in part why the the confusion that we get where, you know, some say it was revealed right after Uhud, some say it was revealed uh, around, um, that, uh, right after Surah al-Hajj, uh, which would be, as I said, very late. Uh, others say, well, it was revealed around the time of Tabuk. Others say that it was revealed around the Banu Mustalik. Ghazwat Banu Um You even get some that uh, claimed that Surah al Munafquun was revealed after Ghazwat al Ahzab, and so on and so forth. Uh, this and uh, when you. I think this will become a, a apparent, inshallah, as we talk about the message of the surah, but when, when you see how remarkably transcendental the message is, uh, the problem was nifaq is endemic. Um, problem was hypocrisy is endemic. Nifaq is hypocrisy, obviously. and. Indeed, indeed, the the the, there is a there is a diagnostic element in Surah al Munafiqoon about the dynamics of hypocrisy and hypocrites. Hypocrisy. is so common that it is as common in human beings as is lying, whether lying to others or lying to the self. Because hypocrisy itself is a form of deception. If you pause and think, all human beings engage in a level, some degree of lying in their lifetime, whether lying to others or lying to the self or both. And most certainly all human beings, or I should say, all believers have elements of hypocrisy because there are elements of dishonesty, a degree of dishonesty. But yet, like dishonesty, and hypocrisy, both hypocrisy and dishonesty are from, from shaitan. They're not godly elements, they're demonic elements. They're shaitani elements. And it is like toxic substances in the body. As long as you are, your body can cleanse and rid itself of toxic substances actively fighting the buildup of toxicity within the body, you remain healthy and living. If you become incapable of cleansing yourself of this toxicity, in other words, of fending off the hypocrisy because you've become very adept at lying to yourself yourself or lying to others. Deceiving yourself or deceiving others. You don't, obviously, you don't deceive God. It's, you know. But it, it is it, and hypocrisy is also this element and subhanAllah that we have, we're doing sort al after yesterday's khutbah because it's this element of um a lack of iman—it's a—it's a contradiction if law in iman. You know when Allah tells you that, as the Prophet ﷺ taught, that all human beings are equal in in Allah's eyes except by their iman. It is indeed, uh, how do I put this? Declaring one's iman, even your intellect telling you that for whatever reasons, whatever the circumstances in your life that led you to say to yourself and to others, I am a believer. And you could very well be very sincere about this. But the perfection of Iman is for your heart to be in sync with your intellectual, um uh declarations with your uh, intellectual assertions. And for the heart to be in sync means an actual relationship with Allah as the khutbah, as the khutbah that I was talking about yesterday, that where you you your desire for izza, your desire for your, your sense of pride in other words, um your sense of what makes you feel elevated as as opposed to deflated is truly and it it, is thoroughly a whether whether Izzab, izzab belongs to god as opposed to belong to you so the normal dynamic is that there are so many in, 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 human beings say we believe all the time but what is much much harder is to get your heart and soul to actually line up with your declared beliefs that is why human beings could say you know yeah i believe in, in that uh, that allah Decides what harm or good befalls me, but yet when harm befalls them, they become sad. It's a discrepancy between their intellect that tells them that I believe in God and the, the heart that actually mirrors what the intellect, what the avoided declarations of the intellect are. And so, that heart that 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 impulse of iman where the relationship with allah is is personalized and intimate um and where it makes you because of that personalized relationship with Allah, it makes you stand out with Allah. So that is, and that's the whole notion of all people are equal in Allah's eyes. You're all equidistant, unless you draw closer, and unless you build a a relationship that is, and this, if, subhanAllah again, I, I didn't think we'd be, or I didn't know that we'd be doing Frota or give the khutbah yesterday, but it's really interesting. That if, if your if misplaced, pride, if misplaced, your sense of ego, if misplaced, it will always stand as an obstacle in this relationship between you and Allah. So many people, so many people have committed themselves to the journey of reaching out to Allah only at the end to discover that all they've really committed to is to worship their own ego and their own pride. And Surat al very is short, but it is powerful and poignant, Because it reaches into the heart of this matter and tells us something about this troublesome, eternal, entrenched uh, challenge of nefek, challenge of hypocrisy. This surah Munafakun is a good example of how understanding the historical narrative helps, but getting stuck at the with at the historical narrative, in other words, not thinking beyond the historical narrative, actually hurts because you miss the point of the surah if you are just simply um wed surah al-munafiqun to the circumstances or the historical circumstances of the surah okay so first something word about the, a bit of the historical narrative maybe um So there is a ba- there are basic elements that we find common with a considerable amount of variations. But uh, you know, I'll stick with the um, um, and I'm I'm sure I remember things here and there as we okay. Um, All right, so we already know, we've already talked about in in several occasions how the challenge of Iman is that there are a number of figures, the, the most famous of whom is Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn, ibn Abi Salul. Um, but there are others. I mean, there are like Wajd bin Qais. Mortab um, bin Um There's someone else that was on the tip of my tongue. He'll come to me. Dakhsham. Um, what was his first name? Dakhsham. I'm pretty sure it was Malik. Malik bin Dakhsham. Um, anyway, so these, in, they are all people of position within Madinian society that to different degrees and extent, extent have uh, people that are influenced and swayed by their opinion. Of course, you know, someone like Abdullah ibn Ubay, um, is far more influential than, let's say, Malik bin Um just his circle of influence is much wider. But what is common to the, the, the consistent dynamic that we see is those who say we believe, but when it comes to accepting, in our language, in our modern language, Accepting the lifestyle changes that embracing Islam involves when it comes to altering the rhythm and philosophy of their life, that's where they have serious difficulties. They say they took their shahada. They say they believe. They even show up for prayer. Allah knows, because Allah tells us that they're not very enthusiastic about prayer. It's not exactly their their they're running to to do their salah with the Prophet or with the others. Um but um they make it. And importantly, and we've talked about this again, um, that they are not. It is not like um, uh, often you are the, the, when when you when you're a kid and you're told about the hypocrites of Medina. Uh, ill-educated teachers allow you to think that the hypocrites were, you know, in a sort of a Hollywood style, sitting, conspiring, uh, being um, obnoxious and nasty and public. The entire problem is that it's a fluid dynamic that, as the Prophet, والسلام, said that some people drift into hypocrisy and out of hypocrisy between night and day. That hypocrisy is to the extent that your actions reveal that you're a hypocrite. Yeah, you could show up in prayer every day, but Your mind is elsewhere. Uh, You could show up to prayer every day, but the minute there is something that you think can stand out as a good excuse for you to bail out, you jump on the opportunity and you're very happy about bailing out. So, and th- and this is the consistent dynamic. And if you remember, in the uh, what sort of leads to um, an escalation that is referred to in Surat al Munafiqun itself is that you remember after the Battle of Uhud. The, there is, or in the, in, the, in the events leading up to the Battle of Uhud, there is one-third of the army which draws from battle midway and basically says, this is a lost battle, we're, we're not going to fight it. And they, they pack themselves up and they return to, to, um, um, to Medina. And that this faction was led by Abdullah ibn Ubayy. Now, Abdullah ibn Ubay, who, and I think we've talked or mentioned this before, Abdullah ibn Ubay, in particular, uh, before the Prophet, migrated to Medina, was posed to be declared the leader of Medina, and, in other words, he he was just in position to to become the leader of Medina when the both even his tribe decided to alter their plans and to uh, instead give their allegiance to the to the Prophet والسلام, and Abdullah ibn Ubay was denied his leadership position because of that. But Abdullah ibn Ubay was a prideful man. He he liked to be special. He liked to stand out. And if he was not treated as special. He would lash out, to put it simply. And so, among his habits was that when people would gather for Jumu'ah, often people would gather even for any event, like Eid prayers or um, according to some reports, even tarawih prayers, whatever, he would always stand around and sort of make a, uh, a theatrical um, perform a theatrical act, where he, after the everyone has become seated, everyone's seated, he would point to the Prophet, peace and say here is your prophet from allah um make sure you honor him and you treat him well and uh now uh, ostensibly or outwardly it 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 looks like um a um uh, what's the word i'm looking for it looks like um A warm gesture, right? You, you, the, the, the once upon a time recognized leader of, or the potential leader of Medina, um, stands there and sort of, when everyone is seen, wants to make sure that his people, the Ansar, the natives of Medina, are recognizing the special position of the Prophet, and so he makes this gesture of saying, I present to you your Prophet. um, Make sure you... But make sure that you listen to him and obey him and so on. Now, The Muhajirun, the, the, the people of Mecca, politely endured this act of gesturing on part of Abdullah ibn Ubayy, meaning that they, they thought it's corny in our modern language. You know, why do we need you to sit there and sort of appoint yourself as officiating? But they also seem to have understood that he's a vain man, and if they tell him stop doing that, that he this will become drama, it will become sort of a melodrama. The problem, though, is that. And here, the the sources will often tell you, as as often when you read medieval sources, medieval sources are very, um, they, they they in the medieval world, structure is highly valued, and when writing history and big and big ambiguity, uh, vagueness, the 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 recorder of history would try to resolve ambiguity to the extent as the recorder can. And one of the earmarks of the Islamic civilization is that the person who's recording history, when when they would give up on resolving ambiguity, they would give you just list a range of narratives and leave it up to you why am i saying that because a historical narrative uh, in in a lot of sources they give it a sort of a, a, a structured form in that he's doing this he's doing this he's doing this until uhud takes place and he withdraws with his for, with his forces and that the, at that point a man called Zayd ibn al-arqam Tells Abdullah ibn Ubay, sit down, we don't want to hear you anymore. In other words, after Uhud, when he withdrew with his one third of the army, Zayd ibn Al Arqam says, You know, you're fake. You, you, after having betrayed us like this, betrayed the Prophet like this, and betrayed us, you want to stand there and pretend like you're telling us, I present to you your Prophet? shut up Just sit down but of course if you are reading your history carefully there is a gap between the battle of uhud and the battle of banal mustalik we are told that the events that precipitated surat and Munafiqoon took place around Banu al So how could it be that he's told to shut up and sit down, but it continues brewing until it explodes around the time of the Battle of Banu al-Mustalak? is more likely, from the variety of historical sources, is that it was a gradual process. Everyone, or increasingly, people saw what he did as sort of theatrical and about about his pride. No one appointed him to this officiating role. And although he offered it as a gesture of... um, like, you know, I'm I'm helping, see, I am I am supporting the Prophet. But here's the thing was it really about supporting the Prophet or really about his own pride and his own ego? And it is clear that even his own tribe, Al Khasraj, start increasingly see getting tired of um, of uh, Abdullah ibn Ubay and his people, their double talk. And the fact that they, they they on the you know on the one hand they say, yeah, we're Muslims, we believe, we're 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 with you in the cause, but on the other hand, their value system resists the test of your value system, to put it bluntly, is that to what extent are you willing to sacrifice? That's the test of your value system. It's easy to say, I believe. It's easy to, as long as belief props you up, it's consistent with your lifestyle, it's consistent with your self-narrative, that's all easy the crux of the matter is to what extent are you willing to sacrifice so you have like the Muhajirun, the biggest test is that they sacrificed their entire longing and, for Mecca and adopted this new home adopted this major sacrifice of the hijra itself And the Ansar are now presented with a different type of challenge, and that is the changing of the character of their native country, which now they are sharing with the migrants, the Muhajirun, and sharing with the influx of converts from outside Medina. So why do people like abdullah ibn ubay or um wasid bin qais and so on why are they seen as hypocrites is because in our language today they bitch and complain they're they're unhappy about the presence of the muhajirun they're unhappy about the influx of converts many of whom were are not from influential tribes or classy or rich or whatever and while they are with the Prophet, والسلام, they are fine. When they go away, they complain. Okay. So then what's the next stage? Well, the next stage is in, there's a tribe called Banu Mustalik, it's not an influential tribe, but it's a it's a sort of a tribe that um, um, the narratives about it is that it seems like it 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 lived off highway robbery and um, raiding caravans and so on, uh, and it, it, Mecca had. For special terms, Mecca had struck with them a deal um, a long time ago that they don't raid Mecca in caravans. Um, In return, Mecca gives them these special terms when they, uh, whatever they've raided from other tribes, they come to Mecca to sell it. Uh, Mecca gives them special terms and gives them access to the particular markets, because Mecca had a whole range of markets, and the markets were like um, big events. I mean, m- markets were not just like an open market that's open all the time, 24 hours, uh, seven days a week. Uh, markets were events, and they were major events. You know, there would be the, the entertainers, there would be the poets, there would be the dancers, there would be the alcohol, there would be the... And there were major events, and... Terms, getting terms in these major events is a very big deal. Where, where, can, you know, location is a very big deal. Like wh- where you get to set up shop, um, it, whether you, you know, everything from even, even like how high the stage you're on to offer your, your uh, material or, uh, it, even the reputation of the of the trading stall you're in, whether it's someone famous of such and such tribe used to own the stall in the past, and then now you get to sell from the stall, so everything mattered. And so, anyway, Benon Mustalaq had, but then the Prophet والسلام, who, especially after the Battle of Uhud, is aware that so many Arab tribes are thinking to themselves, well, if Muslims are defeated, maybe it's a matter of time before we, you know, they, they can add. Defeat always emboldens your enemies. Defeat always is a boost to your enemies, as it is a, a, um, a strike to your morale. So the Prophet gets wind through the, the network of uh, spies that he has that Banu al Mustalaq are organizing to wage a raid, um, and then whether it was in coordination with Mecca or not, I mean, probably Mecca knew, did knew and did coordinate, but they were and so knowing that if he waits around until they, they allow Banu Mustalaq to, to attack first, uh, they are at a defensive disadvantage. He organize, organizes a, a unit that strikes against Banu Mustalaq and defeats him first. Um, okay. Now... However, in this in the events leading up to this short lived battle um there are a couple of things that that and again i mean it, it, i'm um, when when i'm when i'm pause or hedges because i there there is just so many different narratives that um um but so I, i'm if i synchronize between these different narratives, there is clearly something that transpires something that happens that creates tension between the Ansar on the one hand and the Muhajirun on the other hand around the battle of al Mustalik. A lot of the narratives tell you that they start fighting over uh, uh, water, uh, uh, well, um, spring of water, and that um, um, that a man called Sanan bin Wabar, um, Sanan bin Wabar al-Jahni. That Sanan bin Wabar al-Jahni, who is um, an Ansari, uh, gets into an argument with a man called Jahjah bin Saeed al-Ghafari. Um, Sanan is, is the is the Ansari, and Jahjah is the Muhajiri. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so Sanan is, is the Ansari, and Jahjah is among the Muhajirun, in other words, the Meccans. So one of them strikes the other. And at that point, um, Sanan calls upon the Ansari uh, you know, to, to come to his aid, and Jahjah calls upon the Muhajirun to come to, the, to his aid, and they nearly go to blows. And when the, the, the Prophet, ﷺ of course, intervenes and says, what are you doing? You're returning to Jahiliya and, and resolves the fight or resolves the dispute between um, uh, uh, the, 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 the skirmish or the fight that took between the two. But again, purportedly, when the news that a skirmish has taken place between the Ansar and Muhajirun reaches Abdullah bin Ubay. Um. Okay so I'm going to tell you the 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 finish the main st- the the main narrative and then introduce some variations on it anyway so when the story reaches Abdullah ibn Ubay Abdullah ibn Ubay makes a statement that says finally to the effect finally this is he sees in this a a I don't it's not a, an omen because he, from his perspective it's good news um, that the the whole episode of uh, muhajirun being in Medina and it's sort of it, it's about to lift, and he says what is a statement that is very widely recorded. Um, Wallahi Rajana al Al that if we return to Medina now is the time that the the, the honourable ones, the honourable ones he, by by that he means the natives will finally kick out the refugees. And an or the lower people, the lower caste people, meaning the refugees, i.e., the migrants, and that stories tell us that the, the this statement, this offensive statement, that finally we're going to kick these losers out. Of Medina reaches the Prophet Now, why do I say variations on the theme? Because many narratives tell us that no, it wasn't exactly that. It was that after the Ghazwat Banu Mustalaq and the fight between the Muhajirun and the Ansar and the prophet alayhi intervening to resolve this fight that people started they people knew that hypocrites like abdullah ibn Ubayy had fueled the fire of the fire of, of the fight that took place between the ansar and muhajirin that they were constantly you know griping and complaining and so on and so forth. And that as a result, when Abdullah ibn Ubayy would stand at Jum'ah to, or whenever Muslims would gather and say, here, I present to you your prophet, people increasingly started to yell at him to shut up and sit down. That people just got tired of, of the theater. And that thereupon, now, some narratives tell us that Abdullah ibn al-Ubay simply said at that point, not simply, but just him said, started telling people, stop helping out the refugees, the Muhajirun, stop aiding them financially because if you stop aiding them financially, they will leave. They will choose to go to another town other than Medina. And that Abdullah ibn Ubay didn't stop there, but even went further and said, in fact, they are exactly like a dog that you feed until that dog eats you. Something It's an idiomatic statement, it means you 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 feed your dog until your dog becomes so strong or powerful enough to eat you. And that he Said that about the Muhajirun. And that when again this reaches the Prophet, والسلام, Abdullah ibn Ubay swears up and down that I didn't say any of that and that it's a lie. I didn't utter any of this. I don't, I think that that's not precisely. The, I mean, it's too, again, it, in medieval narrative, it's, it, everything is like bracketed in, in very structured, well-ordered fashion. I think what is um, what is likelier in terms of historical narrative is that clearly people, not just with Abdullah ibn but the, the theatrics of people who um, say we believe, but are not with the program, and are constantly... I mean, remember that they would, as we know from elsewhere in the Qur'an, that they would often come to the Prophet ﷺ, with personal excuses as to why they can't go out on jihad. Oh, can you excuse us from this, Ghazwa? Can you excuse us from this? Can you excuse us from that? So the, the whole idea of their, them, their, their involvement with their own selves, their, their entire narrative of being... Constantly complaining about how much they're asked to sacrifice sacrifice, and how much they they are how much they are asked to bear, you know it's unreasonable that we have to keep taking in all these refugees and all these people you know we used to in Medina have barely enough for us, and now we have all these people that came from Mecca and all these converts that are coming from all over Arabia, and so on. And I do believe that at some point, because it's reported too broadly, and by too many sources for it not to have been the case, that at some point, for some reason, Abdullah ibn Ubayy made the statement that eventually, we will get rid of the riffraffs. And he did say, so. that eventually we will get rid of the, the, the riffraff. But the thing is, I don't believe that Abdullah ibn Ubay was the only person who said, stop helping them so that they will go away. Because we have numerous reports, sometimes attributed to Abdullah ibn Ubayy, sometimes attributed to the other people who were identified as hypocrites of Medina. And it is a consistent narrative after Uhud, and a, bi- a narrative that builds up incrementally, perhaps reaching a crescendo around Ghazwat Banu al And, um where the this class of people start saying no, uh, la they start saying if you just stop helping them you know we we've sacrificed so much we've given up so much and they start preaching to their to the to the circles of natives among them well, stop being so generous with the refugees, the riffraff that have come, and stop helping them, because if you stop helping them, ankum, they, they would go away. And that, although it's attributed to different people, probably Abdullah ibn Ubaid consistent with his personality, to say something like, um, um, um some uh, uh, um or in meaning that you you know you you statement the effect that we see it's like we you're the dog that you feed until uh it's like the statement you bite bite the hand that feeds you but here it's like the the, the you know anyway it's the same idea right Okay, and this clearly reaches the Prophet. And when every time the Prophet confronts whether Abdullah ibn Ubay or any of the other individuals who were implicated in this, they would Assure the Prophet whether they would swear. Abdullah ibn Ubay seemed to, to, to always swear a lot. You know, he would say, Wallahi, Wallahi, and so on. But uh, Matab ibn, ibn Qushayr, for instance, would not swear. But he would assure the Prophet that this is a misunderstanding and that they're committed and that they're with him and of course you get the dramatic narratives about Omar ibn al-Khattab offering to chop someone's you know head off um and the prophet would say no 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 calm down Omar we we are not going to do that um other narratives say uh, it was Ali uh, who would offer to chop someone's head off uh, these 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 dramatized narratives uh, um they're earmarks of medieval narrative more, more than a historical reality. I, I don't believe that anyone was going around chopping to, to lob heads off, especially when they got the message from the Prophet that that's not what he was, that's not what he was willing to entertain. But the thing is, the Prophet would confront them, they would assure him and swear to him and tell him, no, we're, we're on board. But it we, we go back in time and again to the same dynamic of this is too much. Why are we sacrificing so much? So it's this cycle of, and I'll show you why Surah Al-Nifaq tells us something that is quite air shattering and scary about in the faq is it maghrib yet oh, in one minute okay maghrib is in one minute uh so we'll break our famous 10 minutes to break fast and pray maghrib inshallah and 10 minutes so don't go away bismillah rahman rahim You know, although, um, this really belongs to, if, Allah Alam, it's in Allah's hands, if, if we do the Sira project, um, But okay, I'll, I'll give you a little bit. Um, although it it really does belong to the to the sera aspect of thing, but the Ghazwat Banu Mustalaq is um, it's also famous for another thing. It it doesn't really have to do with the theme of nifaq, but it just it has to do with the, the historical events of Ghazwat Banu Mustalaq. And that is the marriage of the Prophet from Juwayra um, bint al-Harith. I I I'm I'm hesitating because I I am I'm, I'm worried about it this being a, a digression that's a bit too far um but okay so so the, there y- you have two different narratives about Juwayra b- bint al-Harith um Juwayra bint al-Harith was one with a woman that belonged to the tribe of Banu Mustalak, and um, her she was married to um, um, to her cousin, and her cousin is killed in the battle of Banu Mustalak. Uh, her cousin. Um, I think his name was um, Ibn Safwan, I forgot his first name, right way. Anyway. anyway, so she is taken captive, and in the first report, first set of, first report, or first cluster of reports, I should say, that As a it uh, uh, consisted with the practice at the time, captives of, uh, captives of war are enslaved. And she is enslaved by Thabit ibn Qais. And... I'm having sound
0: issues on this. We need
1: to Uh-oh. Devil attack. assalamu alaykum. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. A'udhu min shaitan ar rajim uh, we, we had a devil attack. We we don't know what, what why. Um, okay, maybe in the interest of time, I
0: will.
1: Don't rush. <coughs> <laughs> okay, I won't rush, but I postpone. I postpone the story of Jairia. As uh, Rami reminded me, it's, uh, uh, it's the, the more correct pronunciation of her name is Juwairia. Anyway, I'll, I'll postpone the story of Maybe we'll do it at the end, rather, um, so we can get into the, the heart of itself. So we, we set up the, the context. Now, let, let's see. So it, it, the start, of the surah gets to the heart of the dynamic. Iza jaakal munafikun call nashadu and innaka la rasulullah wallahu yalamu innakalarasula wallahu yashad walla yashadu inna munafikin la kyzibun ittaku emahum junna in Nahum So the critical issue is that every time that these folks are confronted with the inconsistencies between their avoided belief, the, the the statements of their beliefs that they do everything outwardly at least to say we are one of you. But they are confronted with improper and again I think all of the narratives that we talked about are are a a, a bit, uh, they're they're like little um, archaeological pieces of evidence, if you will, of the historical truth that is taking place. That whether they are complaining about how much the burden that has been imposed upon the natives from the incoming migrants, or when they go a step further and say, you know, if we stop helping them, they will just go away, as Surah al itself tells us. That stop being so generous. And the the evidence is that they the, this type of argument that, well, you know, or we embolden them because we have been so generous and so kind, so they've taken advantage of us. I mean, if you reduce it to its human terms, you find all of it relatable and natural. That they've taken advantage of us. Um, Or even the the crass statement that, well, you know, the... You feed your dog until your dog gets to a point of being strong enough to attack you. Um, All of it, consistently, when they are confronted, they don't care very much about whether, um, whether Zaid ibn al-Arqam or Abdullah ibn Ubay, the, the son of of the head of the of the hypocrites Ibn Ubay himself, who is a good Muslim, converted and was actually a, a devout Muslim, they don't care whether they are uh, believe them or not. They go around them and go to the Prophet والسلام, directly. Now, subhanallah Again, I mean, subhanAllah, that we get um, the Munafiqun right after Mujadala. Because in Surah Al Mujadala, and I forgot to to mention this about Surah Al Mujadala, one of the things that they say about the Prophet is that they say he is Udun. Udun means Udun meant someone who is easily swayed, can be influenced lift, left and right. And in Surah Al Mujadala Surah c- 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 you know says we Allah knows that you are saying that this about him. But indeed, this is only your own egos that think that you're deceiving anyone. You don't deceive anyone. The reason they sidestep those who confront them, like in this narrative where Zayd ibn al-Arqam goes to Abdullah ibn Ubayy and say, how dare you say X, Y, and Z? The response is not to Zaid. The response is to go around to the Prophet directly. And the belief that, well, you know, this Prophet, this man, if we, when we assure him and we swear to him that we are, we didn't say what we're accused of saying and that we are good Muslims, he believes us. the indications are, all indications are, is that the Prophet ﷺ did not believe them. And the Prophet ﷺ knew exactly that they are what who they are. But their own arrogance, their own ego, which, as we will see, makes them consistently misread the situation. And part of misreading the situation is indeed believing that they're fooling anyone most important of all is fooling the Prophet himself so they whether a is someone who's constantly swearing like Abdullah ibn Ubayy or those who would just simply go and say, we didn't say what such and such person say, saying they're lying, they, we, we now, in you find some interesting discussions about whether they knew, like when they would go and say, oh, the, the, these people are, are attacking us and, and, and so on. I don't believe as some have argued that it's it, it wasn't a, sometimes you actually believe your own lies, as we will see the illusion to this in the surah itself, that you become, you have, shaitan has allowed you to deceive yourself so often that truly your your Islam is nothing more than a thinly veiled camouflage for your own egoism and your own comfort zones. And like in Surat al-Mujadala, we find, again, this illusion in Surat al-Munafiqun to in one qira'ah they, they have taken their their oath their shahada as a juna, as a, and as we said junnah is a, what you use to hide behind or as the haq bin muzahim in his says that the, the uh, in his qira'ah imanahum that they've taken their faith as a camouflage to justify the, in in a, in a in a nutshell they've taken Islam itself as a way of of deceiving others they've taken piety as a way of deceiving others. And although, especially when Muslim societies become very corrupt, although this is a very widespread phenomenon, but it is also a grave sin against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to Use Islam, and we've again we've talked about this in Surah Al Mujadalah. But to use Islam, to use Islamic symbolisms, to use Islamic talk, um, to even say, as, as we'll see, to even say, well, you know, I know what's in my heart and because i know it's on my heart then i am i immunize myself against criticism which is the, a very common tactic that you 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 you, you exploit the islamic the, what you know is part of islamic theology that there is no priesthood that Allah truly knows what's, but it is, it is not that you're saying Allah knows what's in my heart because you have a relationship with Allah. You you are using the 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 um, the egalitarianism of Islam itself to immunize yourself to make yourself beyond reproach, beyond criticism. So, you are not saying Allah knows what's in my heart and shuddering with, tremoring with anxiety at the the notion that Allah truly knows what's in your heart. But you're actually asserting it in arrogance. You're actually asserting it to say, don't talk to me, don't reproach me, because Allah knows in what's in my heart, and so I am untouchable. So, now, so say as, um, Muhammad Asad translates it as oath, and we've talked, Imanahum uh, or aimanahum. it's either made their faith or their oath a cover for their falseness, and they turn others away from the path of God. Fasadu an sabilillah. Okay, what is the sudud here? If you think about it, yeah, in narratives that, you know, someone could say, oh, you know, don't help them and they will go away. Or you know, uh, there became like dogs that we helped until now. They've now they're they're vicious against us, or yeah, that in part is the salut. But think of the dynamic of of hypocrisy itself, because as we say that the 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 what we rely on is not. That we we don't rely on. We don't limit the meaning of the text to the historical event, but we go with the, with the language of the text in its generality. We rely on the gener, on the generality that we read in the expression of the text itself. So. Think of the sudud here, ansabillillah. So, on the one hand, yes, there is the, the sudud in the sense you are actually advocating what uh, are subversive calls, but and this is again, this is this is actually pointed out. Uh, in, in, in numerous texts, that the society plagued by dishonesty, the the, the, the real sin of the is that the entrench in society a, a lack of clarity and the acceptance of dishonesty and double talk, that when they say things or they act in ways that raise serious questions, and then they go talk to the prophet, and because the prophet doesn't kick them out of Medina and the prophet doesn't execute them, as one of the famous narratives is that when some, when some, uh, it doesn't matter who, you know, m- most of the reports say it was Omar, when the suggestion is made like, w- w- why don't we just put these people to death? And the Prophet, says, I will not have it said, you know, it will not be the case that uh, people get the message that Muhammad goes around killing his followers or killing his people the fact that the prophet refuses to take action against them, then they go back into society and weaponize that as somehow a tacit acceptance by the prophet of their behavior, which is exactly what would happen. That see... If we were really bad, wouldn't he have done something about us? He didn't. So if he's not complaining about us, why should you complain about us? The impact upon Medinian society of that was especially not was the the, you know the heart the, the the old hands, the people that you hear about, that you would learn about in studying the Seerah as the close, strong, and faithful around the Prophet ﷺ, but Hadith al-Ahd bil-Islam, those who had converted, was one of confusion because it requires a, a, a certain level, either you are in the close proximity of the Prophet to be in the know. So to learn that yes, the Prophet refuses to punish them, but that doesn't mean the Prophet accepts what they do. Or that you would have a level of sophistication in terms of the way you understand morality and ethics. That just be, that while they have not committed an offense that justifies taking criminal action against them, that does not mean that their behavior is not reprehensible. The difference between the application of criminal penalties and moral condemnation. That requires a level of sophistication. Well, a lot of the Bedouins that were converting in the vicinity of Medina to Islam did not have that moral sophistication. And indeed, the role of the munafiqun, especially in the events that are going to lead to the very trying circumstance of Ghazwat al-Khandaq, is proving to be quite taxing. and that is precisely why, although we are, you know, it, it, it's always, again, typical of medieval narrative, it's always packaged into, uh, you know, so, uh, like, for instance, one of the narratives that you need is that, uh, first, Omar goes to the Prophet and says, if you would only command me to strike his, the neck of such and such a person, I would. And so, the, and the prophet would then say, if I would have commanded you, you would have done it. And Omar says, yes, I would have done it. Then comes the second person. And you have the same exact narrative takes place. If I would have commanded you, would, you would have done it. Yes, I would have done it. Then comes the third person. This is very typical of medieval narrative, this sort of staging of events. Now, the, the staging of events, though, represents a historical truth said in a medieval packaging. And the historical truth is that there are repeated complaints, repeated questions. Time and again, people are coming and say and say and saying. What do we do about these people? They're caught doing something wrong. We confront them. They go around us. They go to you. They swear that they are Muslims or they tell you we didn't do it. And you simply nod your head or you say, okay. And then they go around and say, see, the... And they use that to further confuse issues. So that's the, that's the real dynamic going on in society. And SubhanAllah, Surat al we know that the Qur'an is capable when it wants Allah Subh'anaHu Wa taala is capable of naming names when Allah wants. And we know that there are individuals whose names were named. And we know, for instance, like when Allah talks to the Prophet about his companion in the cave, we know that this companion is Abu Bakr. We know when it says, abi He's talking about Abu Lahab. We know that when um, uh, the Quran mentions the Prophet's adopted son by name that Allah mentions is here Surah Al-Munafiqun describes the dynamic but doesn't name names it, it describes the dynamic but it doesn't come and say X, Y, and Z are the people that we're talking about. And furthermore, look into the hadith literature. You will not find in the hadith literature a hadith where the prophet ﷺ says, let me tell you who the munafiqun are. But you will find many transmissions in which It is the actions of people that single out, single them out, in the inherited memory of the ummah as the munafiqun. In this, in itself, is a remarkable wisdom. Because, if the point of the Quran was to solve a historical challenge confronting the Prophet, and that's it, then Allah would name the munafiqun and we would all be done. And we'd like say, have a list of the munafiqun. Okay, thank you very much. Now we know who the pariahs are. But what would be served from that? What would be the lesson given to generations? The whole moral lesson is that you as a community and you as individuals learn to scrutinize, whether individually or collectively, who in fact uses faith as a camouflage for Immorality, for lack of commitment, who is in fact says what they don't do, there is a huge discrepancy between their avoid beliefs and their actual actions. The value system that is affirmed through their behavior or lack of behavior now the description of the munafiq is chilling look wa in the you get in the narratives again typical that um that the Munafiqun, like such and such, they were, uh, you know, they had, they were, had big bodies and, uh, you know, whether true or not, Allahu Alam but, and then you would get in the in the tradition that they would sit during Juma'ah with their backs perched against the wall, um, if you, you um, if you've hung around Salafi circles, often they'll tell you during drama, don't lean back against the pillow or don't lean back against the wall. It's it, The genesis of, is from this. It is the idea that, um, but it, these narratives, again, it's it's sort of a, a, a um, where the, the medieval narrative reduces the, the um, the the textual narrative into a symbolic act, which is again very typical of um, the point is is that these people were Torjibka Ash they were unlike the people who were coming to this faith, often from one sacrifice to another, in a very gritty process of um, uh, uh, working for a cause. The people are uh, this class of div- uh, uh, um, uh, uh, this class of people, the, the hypocrites, um, are very much concerned with their appearance, and they invest a great deal in their looks. Their priorities are different. Their priorities are not... In fact, in fact, one of the major complaints that the, the Munafiqun had is that the Prophet is bringing the riffraff to Medina. One of their major complaints, and eventually they go and build a whole masjid because they are turned off by all the poor people that are praying in the masjid in Medina. So they want to build a masjid for the pretty people in society. <laughs> the murafiqun the of, of the past would, in our day and age, they, they, they're, the, they're the people that would be, uh, uh, would love Park Avenue in New York and Beverly Hills in LA. They, they would find this their home. Their hearts are wedded to the appearances, and they are, they don't see, if you do a deep dive in the seerah, the thing that strikes you is the extent to which all of those who eventually, in the collective memory of Muslims, become known as part of the camp of nifaq is the extent to which they just don't understand or they don't quite buy or they don't ever completely sign onto this egalitarian message of the prophet where you know the, the a person who's wearing rags probably not put never put perfume on in his life leave alone afford perfume uh, doesn't eat the the type of delicacies that or the and and the, uh, you know in in desert environment there are all types of expensive things that you buy to do things like to soften your skin and to um, I, I don't want to gross you out but one of the things that happen in, is like, you know, dead skin accumulates on, on your feet. If, uh, one of the things that you can tell whether someone lives in luxury or not, is uh, that the, the, if you go in and they remove the dead skin from your body, well, that's expensive. And the, the material you use in that it, to cleanse the dead skin of your body, including your feet, is expensive. And one way to be grossed out with people is to notice in prayer, you look at their feet and you see that at their heels, there's like a, you know, a good amount of dead skin, cracked and everything. And you say, oh, gross. But it's expensive. And so some of the remarkable reports that have always intrigued me is that the same people who are known as the, the Ashab al-Nafaq, is that they go... They start complaining about the, the cracked feet and the dead skin on feet. And, you know, why are we exposed to, you know, having to look at these ugly feet all the time and, and like, chuckling myself and saying, oh God, you know, subhanAllah, you know, human beings can, centuries can go by, but they never change. These people belong in Beverly Hills if, if they lived in our day and age. There, so, talk, as-samuhum, it's not as you often. It's not just, oh, you know, it just so happened that this person was tall. What does that mean? It means, as it reads, that they, especially among the 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 new converts and the people who are not, or and even the poor people, they would look at them and say, "Wow, you know, they, they're they're." better looking than meaning better dressed better presented than the muslims who are giving you know all their wealth to to support the war effort and and so on and so forth okay now so this is one thing and quite often what they say if you have the wrong value system so notice. If they talk, means what? That people would listen to them. It is not because Abdullah ibn Ubayy, as some narratives claim, that he was eloquent. We, we, a lot of people transmitted what Abdullah ibn Ubayy said. There is no sign that he was particularly eloquent. I mean, his whole thing about, oh, that, that's not particularly eloquent. That's actually crass, in terms of Arabic poetry standards. It's sort of crass to say that. Oh, you, you know, feed your dog, your, father, your dog will eat you. It's so it's not a matter of, of that. No. What they said appealed to classes of people and that's exactly why they were responsible for, for for turning people away from God's cause. Because what they said appealed to the most base and selfish parts of a human being. When someone comes and tells you take care of yourself, don't, you know, you've given enough, oh, those people don't understand you, you're so important, you're so, you know, pops up your ego, and this is exactly what they did, and tells you that you've given enough and you should give no more. Yeah, so you listen to them. And that's precisely what. But then, look, so, it's like cheap talk that resonates with cheap people cheap talk that resonates with cheap people now here is one of the most you know the quran often like has these these things that just make you pause and and think hard and long. Al-Khushab al-Musanada is wood that is thick and not um, not Malleable, like you, you, it, it, um, if you, it, it's wood that's not particularly good for um, uh, carpent. Uh, what do you call it? a person who makes like chairs? A carpenter. carpenter. Okay, like carpentry. Okay, and wood that is thick enough that it, it, ho- hollowed wood was valued because you can put stuff into hollow, hollowed wood thick wood that you can't hollow, so they themselves are like these stern pieces of wood that are empty inside. The they, they're they're they, they can't they, they have no space for a man. They have no space for values. They they're they're full of themselves. Like you know in, in our modern expression would say they're full of themselves, because they're, they're full of themselves, literally. Okay. But al khusub al-musannada also has an idiomatic meaning. When a person ha- draws themselves, you know, when a person uh, easily, carefully crafts their public appearance, they care very much about how they appear in public. And it is the end of the world for them if, if, the, if the, the, the public appearance they put on is injured or fractured or scratched or disturbed in any way. They're constantly, in the same way that they care very much about their physical appearance, they also care very much. The that they're like, it a a, a, a a uncompromising, um, unyielding public displays. They 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 perform for the their public perception. They don't care about what is inside their soul, exactly like this wood that can't be hollowed, and you can't put anything inside of it. They have, they're they're literally full of themselves because they are all about how they appear in public. But what their true substance is, with something that doesn't concern them. And, but, furthermore, people who are hypocrites, their heart, the heart of a hypocrite, and are always have several faces, The way they are in public is not the way they are in private. In public, they have a persona. In private, they're a completely different matter. And their public performance is what they live for. And it is the end of the world they they are very carefully try to engineer the circumstances so what is what is the truth of who they are or what is known to them privately is and unless unless it it feeds itself into the public performance, then they suppress it. Because of that, they, let's see how Muhammad Asad translated it. Uh, They believe, okay, so he says, appearance may please thee, and when they speak, they are, uh, though art inclined to lend ear to what they say, we've talked about that, but they may seem as sure of themselves as if they were timbers, well, it's not exactly, timbers firmly propped up. They think that every shout is directed against them. So he translated it quite literally. What that means is every shout is directed against them. That because they are fake, they're fake human beings who are constantly performing, putting on a public performance, they are also obsessed with who is talking about them, who is against them, who exposed them. So literally means that they become obsessed thinking that everyone is out to get them. And indeed, we know that the people that the collective memory of Muslims sort of identified as hypocrites, every, they're, they're very, very keen on always keeping track of the rumors. Who went to talk to the Prophet? When did they go to talk to the Prophet? Did, you, did the Prophet mention our names? And they're constantly, whether someone actually complains about them or not, they're constantly convinced that they are the center of the universe, of what goes on in Medina. In fact, they are constantly convinced that they are the center. of. So they they're, they go to the Prophet, alayhi sallam, numerous times and say, and try to find out what people are saying about them, what the rumors are about them. They go to him, often say, swearing up and down, assuring him of their loyalty because they think that people have criticized him even when people haven't. That remarkable expression of the personality of a hypocrite. It is not, if you take this as a historical description of specific individuals and you stop there, then you've missed the entire point of the surah. Because I submit to you that what surah al Munafiqoon says about who's a hypocrite is in all of us. All of us unless we are careful have a public persona all of us could be a we, we, we could be as if uh, a, a pieces of unwielding wood um, a mere appearance, empty of meaning. What we care about is the you know the performance we put on, but truth, value, sincerity. All of us are subject to that paranoia and that obsession where we start thinking we are the center of the world. And that what matters is what, who says what about us, rather than purpose, cause, goal, substance, your relationship with Allah. It's a terrifying description of the nature of nifaq. Now, so this paranoia and this self-centeredness add to this then, another element. Again, the narrative tell us lahum stuck for lakum Rasulullah. That when when they are told, come so that the Prophet والسلام, can. Astaghfir lakum means what? In a lot of commentaries, you get the impression that we're th- what they're th- they tell you a story also. That Abdullah ibn Ubay, when um, he said this statement about oh, when, if we go back to Medina, you know the the, the uh, we'll kick out the riffraff. Um, there are again d- different versions, but that Zaid ibn al araqam went and told the Prophet والسلام, and a story that I don't believe personally, that the Prophet sallam, didn't believe Zaid ibn al Arqam. How, I mean, the possibility that the Prophet wouldn't believe Zayd ibn al-Arqam but would, be, would believe Abdullah ibn Ubayy is, is practically nil, zero. Anyway, that the Prophet didn't believe the, the Zayd ibn al-Arqam until Allah came and vindicated Zaid. Again, I don't, I don't buy that. But that when Allah vindicated Zayd people went to Abdullah ibn Ubay and said, okay, you know, now it's clear that Zaid was saying the truth and you were lying. Go apologize to the Prophet and he will forgive you. And he refuses. And you read in a lot of sources that this is what is meant by Ta'adu yaktaghfir lakum rasulullah. But again, this, I mean... I'm just giving you one of the many versions. Um, The issue is deeper than that. Is that when they are told to stop being so superficial and so self-centered, to stop being hypocrites, in other words, And called to their conscience. Look at the... the, They don't even... It's it's not that they say no because that would be too obvious. If if you say no, they turn away. What does that tell us? It tells us Tells us part of the, the characteristics of hypocrisy is not just self centeredness and superficiality and paranoia, but on top of that is obstinance and stubbornness. When they are called to their conscience, It's not that they they say no they just simply avoid the entire situation they they walk away from it Of course in the books of tradition, you find a tradition where you know a companion of the Prophet when they say asked about and then you know he, so he lifted his neck and then turned it to the right and said, "This is what it means." But again, this all this reductionism, because you find modern teachers, they they relate these medieval narrative as if the entire meaning of the Quran can be capsulized in the medieval narrative. The the medieval narratives are attempts at approximating the meaning within the dynamics of the way that medieval people transmitted and communicated knowledge. But the meaning of the text is far more expensive, expansive, than the mechanics of the medieval narrative. So the issue is not that they turn their head to the right or they're lifted, because I, I've had situations where someone says, well, you can't say lower because you know, I, I didn't raise my ha- head and turned my head to the right. Okay, so you turned your head to the left. Does that make all the difference? The, the point is, is that you are resistant to advice. You are resistant to the call to your conscience. No one can talk to you about what's right and wrong because you consider yourself beyond that. What time is it? Um, Okay. Obviously, we're not gonna finish Surah Al-Fatiha we'll to tonight. Um, Ramadan is ending, and the good news is my my semester is also ending. We're in exam period, so. Inshallah, I'm gonna have more time and in, in the in the summer. Um, Inshallah. Uh, should we stop here? So stop here. Stop here? No. 44 <laughs> 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 hour
0: house. <laughs> Are we you sacrificed uh, through the night. He has not
1: he has I I just Okay, well, we will we, we'll, in next, Haqqa, inshallah, we'll finish Surah and, Al-Nafqun and I'll tell you the narrative about joyria and there are a few things that I forgot from Surah Al-Mujadala, so we'll do that, inshallah. And uh, not a few things, I mean, it's actually one or two things, but uh, yeah, and Sorry for the devil attack. And uh, we, we, we're we at the very end of Ramadan, so intensify your dua. It's Allah alam, um, where, where are we going to be next Ramadan? Okay, you want to come? And don't forget to remind them of Taraweeh
0: okay alhamdulillah. um well that's a cliffhanger i thought we would finish tonight i'm i'm disappointed <laughs> but uh, you know we can't rush we have to do this right and alhamdulillah, um next next session we'll have a chance to do q a and we'll have a chance to make sure we tie off loose ends from majadullah and revisit this um this is such a powerful um, set of of um, halakas. These last three have been so powerful because, especially, you know, like you you see people you know in these descriptions. And like I was saying in the beginning, you know, when you have tools to recognize, um, you know, yourself or people you know, it just it hits home so much harder. And again, it's it's like you know this is the methodology right this is the way to live the way to understand things Um, you know like uh, my my, my fish example you know it's like you can give someone a fish for a day it's like you can answer a question and satisfy them for a day but if you actually teach them to have a methodology a way of understanding a way to approach a way to assess and self-reflect it's so powerful so I'm so grateful every time we we cover these and you just you feel like every time the Sheikh shares something that that you recognize in someone around you or someone you know that just makes it so powerful and so so vibrant right like this is vibrant Islam and and how how we can then apply that Um, so we have Tarawiyah I want to share again um, we actually had another Ramadan miracle Um, one of our community members no (laughs) no this is seriously like I, I can't believe this Someone here has been training for a, um, for a marathon. She ran a half marathon, 13.1 miles, while fasting today and still and showed up to the halakha and broke fast with us, drank water for the first time. I mean, I would be dead. That is a Ramadan miracle and it's an incredible accomplishment. So congratulations, Jana, it's amazing. So anyway, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And um,
1: her name is Jana.
0: Her name is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, she's amazing. So, um, anyway, um, and then she wore free Palestine shirts as she was running, she and her family. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, even better. That's yeah. <laughs> so join us for Tarwiyah. Um, everyone have a wonderful, you know, Ramadan uh, last few days. Um, oh my God, Brian, you got your Suli shirt. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> if anybody wants an Suli shirt, write me. We can also make sure you got one. Um, and, um, yeah, that's it. Anything else? Anybody else want to share? Okay, thank you for being with us. You guys have a, a really blessed last few days, a wonderful Aid, and we'll look forward to seeing you very, very soon, inshallah. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Great to see you. Assalamu <laughs> alaikum.